HR leaders have difficult conversations around an incredible range of topics. It would just be easier to say, we don't want you around than to say, hey, I need you to wear a bra to work. I'm Michelle Aronson, and welcome to True Stories at Work, where we discuss the best things about working in human resources, the people, the stories, and the things that happen at work that we didn't even know about, workplace confessions. I'm a recovering HR executive, certified coach, and business school professor who knows that the best stories happen at work. From heartbreaking to heartwarming, from hilarious to outrageous. Now, I help companies build better workforces by aligning values and actions to business strategy. Let's connect about your people's strategy, and if you don't have one, we could talk about where you could get started. Reach out to me at physicsatwork.com, and we can connect about the best part of work your people. In a past role, I was a member of a magical HR executive committee. It was pulled together by a group purchasing organization to represent a variety of members from each region of the country. There were about 30 of the best HR executives I had ever met. I loved going to the meetings to connect learn what they were doing, and hear their great stories. Today, you get to meet Michael, who was a member of that committee. You will hear his journey in and out of HR. As an attorney, he shares, There's real value in going ahead and ripping off the Band-Aid and having the difficult conversation. And even when things don't go as planned. It's actually hard to do the things when you're in the moment and experiencing it as a human as well. He discusses the impact that subtle nonverbal behavior can have on feelings and perceptions. Even if it's not intentional, simply the chair I pick is sending a message. And you get to learn the approach that he took to teach people how to treat his HR team. And how he reinforced that HR is not just a punching bag. At the end, you'll get to hear a workplace confession, something that happened at work that never made it through the doors of HR. This one is about me, a director sharing a story that he wanted to confess on my behalf. How generous. So let's get started. Thanks for being a guest on my show, Michael. Happy to be here, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me. I am very excited to have you on the show. And the reason I'm very excited to have you on the show is because you're an attorney. You have been in the HR space. You've been on the corporate space. Let's just cover all of the spaces that you've worked in. You've, you've hit the highlights. I started my career in employment law, actually at the farm I'm at now as a young associate. And then I was an in-house attorney for a large healthcare system for six years, and then followed by seven years in human resources for the same healthcare system. 
Uh, and before I decided to go back into private practice, so I'm back to being an employment attorney again. We're going to dig into that for most of the show, but before we get too far away, I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was that like? Yeah, I grew up in Duncan, Oklahoma, which is, for Oklahoma, it's a medium-sized city. For people uh, from other places, it'd be a small town in southern Oklahoma. And it was a, a fine place to grow up. I had good school system. I had a lot of fun. And when I turned 18, I was ready to drive away and experience something different. I think I did the same thing. When you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was your sort of dream job? Yeah, for a long time, I wanted to be a farmer like my granddad. And then I moved on to zoologist. And then I figured out that uh, math and science, while I could do okay at, I knew I didn't want to do those college classes. And I got into debate and public speaking in high school. Uh, and that led me toward, I thought I was going to be in public policy and government work. If you'd asked me in high school, I would have said I would never be an attorney. Mm -hmm. But about three quarters of the way through college, I began to think about law school. Yeah. What inspired that shift? I think I still was very unsure of a career path uh, at that time, but I knew that if I went the law school route, that I would have multiple options for careers that would be broader than if I simply got a public policy degree. And so I think it was part of it was keeping my options open. My actual final decision came down to getting a master's in Russian, which is what I, my undergraduate degree was in, or going to law school. And it came down to the final moments, but I decided law school was the way to go. I would love to hear what your early career was like and, and what got you to go to the other side. Yeah, so this was actually a great place to work. I, I worked in a really good section as a young associate was not in love with the billable hour. I think that billing is a skill in terms of capturing the time you actually spend. And I was not very good at that skill as a young associate. So I found that I was here a lot and uh, my wife would often have dinner with me here at the firm so that she could see me. Saturdays were the day I got to wear shorts to work. There came a time and basically my wife said, I love you, but I'm not having your babies if you work at the firm. And so, <laughs> and that was fair. I actually loved the work itself, but kind of the expectation for how much time to be at work was just not in keeping with what I wanted to be focused on, which was being with my wife and ultimately starting a family. So that's what led me to the, to the other side, as you phrased it. So how was that transition from those first few years? Yeah, I really appreciate having been in these multiple roles, they give me a much better sense of what the client is actually facing. Something that's just harder to do when you only sit in the, the outside chair the whole time. It was a good but hard transition. I also learned that the amount of the law that we needed to know for the litigation was so much smaller than what you have to know inside in terms of all the various compliance issues that rarely get litigated, but are still important in terms of compliance. So I learned so much more about the law by going in-house than it, it would have taken me many more years to learn those things if I had stayed at the firm, whereas it was kind of baptism by fire. I got assignments my first uh, couple weeks and I thought to myself, I, I don't do contracts. And they're like, oh no, you do. 
you do all the uh, HR and employment related contracts. I thought, okay, I, I've got something to learn here. You know, I had never done an I-9 audit and about a month in, I was doing training on I-9. So it was just all kinds of things. I had to learn immigration law. I learned employee benefits law. It really opened my eyes to a much wider set of topics that I had, that I'd been exposed to before. I really learned that what I loved was actually being on the front end of problems so that we could actually, a lot of the time, solve the issue and keep an employee, you know, help management think through the fastest way to actually solve the problem is not terminating people and finding someone else, but instead working through performance issues. One of my funniest stories is, is slightly gross, but not terribly gross. I actually did employee relations for the rural facilities. And so they, they would call me to work through those issues. And I got a call one day about a lady who worked at the front desk of a physician clinic and they wanted to fire her. And the reason was they had been getting complaints that she was eating her boogers. And that's gross, right? And so I, gross. you know, 100% understood why they would want to do that. But instead of saying, yes, that's gross, go ahead and fire her. I said, well, has anybody talked to her about this? And they said, no, we're, they were super embarrassed to have the conversation. I said, you know, I get that this is embarrassing and none of us want to talk about it, but I would really like to know if she has any clue that she's doing this. And so they went ahead and agreed to have a conversation first with her. And she was mortified. She actually had no, she was not consciously doing it. And she could not believe that she had been engaged in this behavior. They had the conversation with her. She immediately stopped. And I got a call back uh, a couple months later where they thanked me for getting them to have the conversation because she was a good employee. They were just embarrassed about the fact that she'd have been engaged in this behavior. But it was really gratifying for me. And it reminded me of the importance of having the hard conversations that, that when you're in management or HR, that's your job that avoiding those is actually kind of failing to do your duty to the organization. And so I've actually used that story a lot. And when I've talked to people who don't want to have hard conversations and say, you know, there's real value in going ahead and ripping off the bandaid and having the difficult conversation. And I also use it when people assume that employees know they're engaged in bad behavior and just don't stop to help people think through. Sometimes people are not aware of what they're doing or the impact of what they're doing. And a crucial conversation can lead them to a place of better performance. I agree. I like the analogy of ripping off the Band-Aid because when you work in HR, you have to do that work. It's awful and embarrassing. And talking to a person who is being investigated for sex at work or all sorts of other things where you're saying like, I can't believe I'm having to talk about this with another human being. I was standing in line at the airport once and I got called whether I was on vacation or not. And I was having to talk an HR professional through how to talk to an employee about the need to wear a bra to work. And that I was the person having to have that conversation surprised me because they, they just wanted to fire her. It was once one of those again. It would just be easier to say, we don't want you around than to say, hey, I need you to wear a bra to work. And it, instead, I had to be the guy who said, no, we need to actually have the conversation first. Please wear a bra to work. 
Uh, and so it's memorable because I'm on vacation, having to talk to an HR professional about wearing about that type of dress code issue. Uh, yeah. But all the, all those kind of things came up constantly. They do. They do. And it's a little bit of a mystery, like why we're not able to have those conversations. I actually developed so much more compassion for managers when I became one myself. S switching from giving the advice to having to actually implement it day to day. I remember the first time I had to do corrective action with someone. I failed completely in doing corrective action. I broke all the rules that I always told people to follow. And the worst one, I got angry, which was something I always counseled not to do, that you're just, corrective action is just about facts and listening. And it's supposed to be a conversation. You're supposed to make, remain matter of fact and kind of dispassionate and, you know, kind of an open feel for the person receiving it. And I had a person who was receiving it and she was so combative that I got combative. I walked out of the meeting knowing I had failed, that I had not checked the boxes I was supposed to check. The in-house counsel in my head had not been loud enough because I was not following my own advice. And it just, it gave me a lot more compassion going forward in terms of dealing with managers of saying, it was nice to be able to say, I'm actually sitting in that seat too. And I know that this is hard. And I, I feel like I got a lot more credibility once I had sat in the chair and had to actually do it myself. In good news, I got better at corrective action. I'm not, you know, as I had to do more of them as a manager. But that first one taught me a lot about the challenge of taking the advice that you give and actually implementing it day to day. It made me both a better manager having go through the experience, but also a better counselor for the people I worked with because I didn't have the sense of, gosh, you just, just check the boxes, just do the stuff. It's actually hard to do the things when you're in the moment and experiencing it as a human as well. Yeah, that's true. Point well taken that easier said than done because you get your feelings triggered and you get in the moment and things don't go as planned. But, um, but practice makes perfect, right? You've got to just kind of face each new adventure as it comes into your space. Tell me about your transition. So you were working on the, the legal side. What took you even further into HR? Yeah, I think it was really twofold. Uh, I worked with some key leaders in human resources, and I expressed interest in things they were doing beyond the actual compliance work. And then I decided that it was important that I signal very clearly my commitment to wanting to move to HR. So I went ahead and got certified through HRCI just to show that I was committed to actually not just knowing the legal stuff and assuming HR, but actually learning HR as a kind of independent focus. And so those things came together and the position actually opened up because the former employment attorney had also gone to HR. And I started with that. We ended up doing a reorganization. And over the course of time, I ended up having all of HR and some other stuff before I eventually became the VP. What are some situations that you had to face in that capacity? Yeah, we had a physician investigation and the VP at the time and the head of employee relations met with the hospital administration, a physician. And I don't think it was intentional, but what happened was all, and these were all men except for the employee relations manager. 
all of the men, including the physician, sat on one side of the table and she sat on the other side to do the interview. And this was a very difficult physician. He had been difficult for a long time. He had gotten final warnings multiple times. You know, no, this is the final. No, no, this is the, no, really. No, really, this will be the final. It, it, he was a frustrating case. But what happened was she didn't feel supported and he felt empowered. It was as simple as where people sat at the table. I don't think there was any intention behind that, but it is what the impact was. And it made me think of a number of issues that we, that we as HR professionals faced and also made me cognizant of her as a woman being in that position and having that power line up sitting opposite her, as opposed to the VP sitting next to her, right? Or, you know, maybe the physician being alone. It, it made me aware of people where people sat at the table more than anything ever did. But from an HR perspective, it reminded me of the importance of how those power dynamics come into play. But when you're facing in healthcare, a physician who's a major referrer into the system. And so the dollars and cents of that play a key role in all of the decisions that are made, whether we like it or not. It matters how, how HR projects into that. And in that case, it was that basically employee relations was sidelined. It made it feel perfunctory the way that setup happened. It also meant that she felt unsupported and it had a huge impact for me on how I approached setting up meetings, setting up interviews, dealing with investigations, just everywhere that we had to think through power dynamics. I thought about what is the role I'm playing? What's the message I'm sending that I, that I want to make sure I'm very conscious of the message that, that I can't just be blase about those things because they are playing a role, even if I'm not saying it, or even if it's not intentional, simply that the chair I pick is sending a message. So another story that comes to mind is when I started in HR, some of the feedback I would get would be, oh, this happened, but I didn't say anything because nobody cares that it happened to HR, or we're just supposed to take that because we're HR. A couple of them were calls into the customer service center where people would become irate and start cursing at uh, members of the team. And I would hear about it and I'd go follow up to find out what happened. And they would say, and I, I don't even think this was necessarily an actual communication from management, but it was, it was a perception that in HR, you're just supposed to take it. That's just the way it is. And I really set down a bright line, which said, that's not actually true. People are upset when they call HR most of the time. Uh, they don't call the customer service center just to report how happy they are or that they successfully got a paycheck or that they like the benefits. They call because there's a problem. And so, of course, we do have to expect people to be upset, but there's a difference between being upset and being rude. And so I actually developed the expectation that if anyone on the team got a call that they crossed the line, they were supposed to report the call so that we could listen in. Sometimes people would report calls that did not cross the line and we'd coach about that. But most of the time they, they knew where the line was. And then I took it upon myself to follow up whoever that person's manager was, report the problem and ensure that it was dealt with. And it, it sent a huge message to my team that they didn't have to put up with it. I really think that 
it changed the attitude of the team and the kind of where they were as a group in terms of feeling like it was okay to raise their hand about issues, um, I think was helpful too in sending a message in the organization that HR is not just a punching bag. These are members of the team too. And if you're going to call, you need to be professional and treat them like members of the team. We had a similar issue. We did a big I-9 audit and discovered a number of issues where people had to come back in and redo their I-9s. And to a T, 100% of them were not happy with that. Uh, no one likes to come, come back and have to redo something. Interestingly, even the VP of HR at the time had to come redo his. So that, that was actually a good story because we'd say, hey, this is not specific to you. But we had a guy show up at the front desk and just curse a, a storm up one side and down the other of the person sitting there. And I ended up calling his manager and I got pushback initially. You know, it was, hey, you know, no one likes this. And, you know, he's generally a good employee. And I said, he may technically be good at his job, but he's demonstrated that he's not committed to the values of the organization if he's willing to show up and curse out my employee. And I pushed and pushed until he got corrective action because I both thought that was appropriate for him, but I wanted to be able to go back to my team member and say, this matters in this organization, that we take our values seriously. And so I think those were a couple of stories that, that I thought it mattered to my team that, that we actually were a part of the overall organization, that it wasn't just, you know, HR is over here. I think in some organizations, HR can be the bad guy. And frequently you get painted as that, like you're a stumbling block or you're keeping management from doing what they need to do. And I wanted it to be, hey, you know, we're all on the same team here, but that that's a two-way street in terms of how we're going to treat each other. Yeah. I love that story. That's so critical. And as HR, you're the keeper of the values to some degree. And the values are never like yell and scream at each other and be a jerk. I could hear the front desk and people would yell and I would step out and be like, I'm in charge and I'm the only one that's allowed to yell at my staff. So why don't you come back and talk to me about whatever's bothering you? And, you know, what's funny is they wouldn't yell at me, even though they were still mad about it. And then I would talk about what our value of respect means and what those behaviors are, because they shouldn't be doing that anywhere. Sometimes they were doctors. Sometimes they were executives. Sometimes they were frontline workers. But it is important to protect your team. I mean, I think that's critical. What has been the greatest ethical dilemma you have faced in HR? I think that in my experience, the hardest moments have come when the financial impacts of an HR decision have been the driver for management. So when there have been moments when I was 100% certain of the right thing to do from a organizational perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a values perspective, and where the financial cost was so high, the management did not want to do that. Uh, and those generally were physicians. And so I found that that was challenging. Um, I was also challenged and the challenge ended up leading me to make another career change back to being a lawyer. Then this is not a secret in that the organization. So no one who's from there will, will be shocked. I ended up not seeing eye to eye with the new CEO. And I, I said this in a senior leadership meeting, so he wouldn't be surprised to hear me say this here. I was concerned that we had been moving in a direction where 
we no longer thought of our the employees as people, but as just cogs in a wheel uh, that were interchangeable without regard to who they were as people. And that didn't sit well with me. I, I actually had a practice. We had reductions in force over the course of time within the organization. And I had a practice of actually pulling up the picture of every single person who would be losing his or her job. So I could be mindful of how we approached these moments in the organization's life and always remind myself that these weren't simply FTEs, which we like to talk about people as FTEs, but they were actually individuals. And I, I did that throughout my career just to make sure I never lost sight of that. I think that as HR, we want to make sure that, you know, we still have to operate in the best financial interests of the organization, right? The organization cannot continue if it cannot pay its bills. And so we can't get in the way of that, but it's easy to start thinking about people as simply numbers or FTEs, as opposed to remembering that real people are losing their jobs and those are having real impacts on their life. And so I ended up getting sideways with our new CEO and I made the decision myself. I said, I'm, I'm not going to be the right kind of HR professional for this particular individual. Just the way we envisioned things wasn't the same. And so it was best for me to move on. And so I solved that ethical dilemma by exiting uh, <laughs> the situation because I wasn't meeting his needs. You know, it was certainly mutual in terms of both of us knowing that he needed to go in a different direction. Yeah, that's such an important story around the human part of human resources and the caring for the employees and the actually seeing the faces of the people who are impacted and just how your heart for the culture, you know, it it may or may not work with the next round of leadership. It's really hard when the CEO has a different perspective or values. I mean, I've seen several CEOs and the culture always shifts pretty dramatically based on what they're bringing into the mix. So being self-aware and taking care of yourself in that situation sounds like a really wise choice. So that was a great story too, by the way. I love that story. I always want to know what people's workplace pet peeves are, so we might as well get that out of the way. What is your workplace pet peeve? My number one workplace pet peeve is someone saying that's not my job. And I know sometimes that's true, right? So, I mean, if you walked up to somebody whose job was housekeeping and said, I need you to do a heart transplant, that would obviously be not their job. But I find that the vast majority of the time when somebody says that, it's not because they were asked to do something wildly outside of their normal job duties. They're asked to pinch it because something went wrong. They're asked to do something on the edge or they're simply asked to do their job. And I just hated getting that response. I wanted somebody to actually step up and do what they were asked to do or to help the person find the right person, right? So. I, every once in a while, I would get asked something that was outside my skill set or that was actually the responsibility of a different member of the team. And I never said it wasn't my job. I said either I'm going to go figure this out. And then I got back to the person or I gave them a warm handoff to the right person to make sure they got taken care of. Uh, and we had that culture in our HR department of it's not okay to simply transfer and say, good luck. Basically, it was if somebody calls you and they should have called somebody else, 
They need a warm handoff, an actual introduction to the right person who's supposed to help. I love that. Anything I didn't ask that you would like to share? I would say that what where I'm at in my career is I wish I could go back and whisper in the ear of my young self of saying, just keep trying different things and know that your career doesn't have to go the exact direction you thought it would. I thought I would retire from my last place and I'm actually in a better spot now. I think sometimes people settle because they don't think what they want out of their professional life is doable, but I think more people could do it than think they could do it. So I would just, you know, encourage people to really try to find the thing that would actually work best for them. I did that multiple times in my career and it's all worked out for the good in the end. Wise words. That is great wisdom. Anything from the podcast, key takeaways, things you want to reiterate? So the one, the one key takeaway that I would say hits most of the topics we talked about is go ahead and have the hard conversation. Yeah. And you get better at them. The more you have, the better you yep. get. It's like a muscle and exactly. we're all afraid of flexing it. But when you've been in HR, you get really good at flexing that muscle. Well, thank you for being on the show. It has been a pleasure to spend the time with you. And I'm just really grateful. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's great to see you. I appreciate you inviting me on. We've all done something bad at work, but here's your chance to confess. From small wrongs like borrowing office supplies to simplify your back-to-school shopping or snacking on a coworker's lunch, to the major workplace sins, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll type. Here is today's Conscious Clearing Confession. Today's workplace confession is from one of my favorite partners in crime, a leader I worked with who was always up for fun and willing to laugh at me or himself. I loved how he doesn't even refer to me by name, but by my job title at the time, the director. On this particular day, I received a text from an unknown source. I did not recognize the name or the number. And it was very to the point. The question was in text, how's your day going? And I replied, who is this? And at this point, I'm walking in and right in front of human resources and the switchboard, which happened to be pretty much side-by-side offices. And the party replied with their name. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know you, but I'm having a great day. Thank you for asking. And the sender texted me back, L-M-A-O. And I didn't know what L-M-A-O, I'm embarrassed to say. I don't know what that was. So it just so happened that the switchboard was open and they report to me and I had a Spanish speaking person in there. And at the same time, the director was walking by, the director of human resources, and she said, good morning to me. And I said, good morning. And I carried on my discussion with the switchboard operator with the door open. And I said to the operator, what does Yamo mean in Spanish? And the switchboard operator said, boss, I don't know what that is. You said Yamo? I said, yeah, Yamo. 
L-M-A-O. Isn't that Spanish for something? And at that point, the director of human resources said, inappropriate, Mr. And I said, what is inappropriate? And the reply from human resources was, you need to ask your 14 year old daughter what LMAO is. I'm 100% confident that she knows what it is. So I did go home and ask my daughter who started laughing and said, I don't think I can repeat that to you without you getting upset at me. And then I ended up looking it up. And yes, now I know what LMAO stands for. So these are the reasons that I miss going into the office. I was innocently walking into work when I heard this delightful conversation and had to pop in with my opinions. Nothing is better. It reminds me of a story about my mom. I used to call her on the way to work, and one morning I was about to hang up. I parked my car and I'm walking through the garage. And she said, wait, 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 before you hang up, I need you to tell me, what is a MILF? And I said, why? And she said, well, I'm reading a book and they talk about it. And I said, what kind of book are you reading? And apparently it was a part of her book club. So I told her what it was and she was horribly embarrassed. And I guess the moral to both these stories are don't reach out to me if you don't know an acronym, because apparently people end up being a little bit, a little bit embarrassed. Now clear your conscience by submitting your workplace confession at physicsatwork.com slash podcast. Well, that's all for today's episode of True Stories at Work. Thank you to Michael for joining me and for the anonymous workplace confession about me. Stay tuned. He has more to report. Thanks for listening to the show. If you work in HR and have a story to share, please visit my website, physicsatwork.com podcast. Stories are what people remember and how we connect. So please share yours with me. Thanks. Haiku for Michael. Michael knows that growth requires difficult words to be shared with kindness.